Lord, our desire this morning is to glory in our Redeemer, to celebrate Jesus, all that you are for us, all that you have done for us. You are our treasure, our joy, our delight. We ask now for your help as we open your word. Lord, give us eyes to behold and see your glory that we might be changed, that we might be satisfied, that we might be convicted, that we might be comforted, that we might be encouraged. Lord, we wish to see you this morning. And so we ask for your spirit to be present, to be with us and to help us. And we pray this in faith and in your precious name. Amen. Amen. All right. The children can go ahead and be dismissed. The young ones who go downstairs for Children's Church. And I invite the rest of you to turn this morning with me to Luke chapter 1. You guys are to be commended for being here this morning. You are literally the frozen chosen who <laughs> braved the cold and you're not traveling like so many in our body and you're not sick like many in our body and you're not home for Christmas break like many of our students. You are here and you are with us and I am glad to be with you this morning. You know, every year we rehearse the story of Jesus' birth around Christmas time. And as we should, Jesus, as we've sung so much this morning, is at the center of our faith. He is our Savior. He is our Master. He is our God. And the story of Jesus' birth with its characters, we know the shepherds, we know of King Herod, Joseph, Mary, the angels, the magi from the east, all these different characters, they're familiar to us. The narrative is familiar to us. The star that appeared, the, the announcement by the angels, uh, all the different factors that come together to bring us to the point of Christ's birth. We, we know all these details are so familiar to us, and really that's how it should be. I mean, that's one of the reasons we tell this story every December and celebrate it. We want our children to know it backwards and forwards, and we who do know it want to be reminded of it. It should be familiar to us. But the danger of familiarity is that the what of what happened, the details, become so common that we may be tempted to neglect, to stop and ponder the why. Why did these things happen? The reality is that every detail of Jesus' birth, every detail of Jesus' life, Every detail of his death and his resurrection, every detail even of his ascension are filled with significance. It all matters. And this includes specifically, for our purposes this morning, the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. The question I want to address this morning is why does the virgin birth matter? Is this just some neat little detail of the story? Or does it have significance for us today? We all know the story that Jesus had no earthly biological father. But why is that so important? What truths hang upon that crucial detail? What is lost if we sort of compromise that truth and give in to some who may challenge the historicity of the gospel accounts? That Jesus was actually, literally, really born of a virgin. Well, first what I want to do is briefly look at the testimonies of both Luke and Matthew to review what happened, and then we'll get to the why. So look with me, with me, if you would, at the story of the revelation to Mary in Luke chapter 1, starting in verse 26. It says, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. 
But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. So first I want you to look at the content of this message. What is it that the angel said to her? We see this in verses 23 through 33. The angel first of all tells her, as she's startled, she's seeing this vision, he tells her that the Lord is with her. That God is present. That God has drawn near to her. This young girl, this virgin. And and the purpose of God's presence with her. He tells her, do not be afraid because God has not come to judge you. He's come to bless you. You have found favor with God. Along with God's presence comes the promise of a miraculous birth, that she would give birth to a son. And the angel prescribes his name. You will call his name Jesus, Yeshua, the Lord saves. That is the meaning of his name. And he announces that this son, Jesus, will have great prominence. He will be great, and he will be the one with whom and through whom God will fulfill all of his promises to David. He will be the one who sits on the throne to whom God will give an eternal kingdom, a kingdom that will never, ever end. Mary is shocked at this. She's unmarried, and she's never been with a man. She says, how can I conceive a child? How can this be since I'm a virgin? The angel goes on to tell her of the means of this miraculous fulfillment, verses 34 through 35. This birth will not be the result of a union with a man. It will be the result of the presence of God with her, Just as God provided a miraculous birth to the barren Abraham and Sarah, like we're studying in Genesis right now. God did that miraculously, gave them a child, Isaac, in order to f- fulfill his covenant promise. So too would God provide a miraculous birth for Mary to bring his covenant purposes to pass. The rhetorical question that God asked Abraham back in Genesis 18, you remember that? As they sat there sharing that meal outside the tent, The Lord said to him, is anything too hard for the Lord? That rhetorical question is answered powerfully by the angel in verse 37. Nothing will be impossible with God. There's implications for this miracle. We see this in verse 35. He will be holy, unique, set apart, and sinless. He will be the son of God, not the son of Joseph or any other man. He will be unlike any other child in his nature and in his status, utterly unique, set apart for God's purposes, and having a special relationship with God, his Father. The angel tells Mary the proof 
of this promise will be a sign that God's power and faithfulness are already being demonstrated in Elizabeth. The pregnancy of Elizabeth, her cousin, who was barren like Sarai years and years and years ago. In her old age, she was now six months pregnant. Go and see, the angel basically says. See that God will do what he says he will do. Kind of like, for those of you kids who've maybe read the books or seen the movies of the Chronicles of Narnia, the beaver tells the children excitedly that Aslan is on the move. The angel is telling Mary that God is at work. He's already doing something. He's already at work. Go and see, and he will do more. And Mary responds how? She responds in faith. It's beautiful here. She embraces God's plan for her in word. She says in verse 38, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. But she embraces it in her heart as well. If you look over to verse 45, she goes to visit her cousin Elizabeth. And Elizabeth says, Blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. She believes it. She doesn't just give it lip service. She embraces it in her heart. And this faith spills out in a beautiful song in verses 46 through 45. Mary believed God's word and it filled her with a sense of joy and wonder. And she celebrated all that God was going to do for Israel through this son. But Mary was not the only one to receive a word from God concerning this miracle, this miraculous birth that she was going to give birth to a son. The explanation and significance of this birth is also shared with her future husband, Joseph. Turn with me, if you would, to Matthew chapter 1. Let's flip back a ways. Matthew chapter 1, starting in verse 18. Matthew writes, Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph... Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name Jesus. So Matthew tells us the story of Jesus' birth from a different angle. Not from Mary's perspective, but from Joseph's. We see in verses 18 through 19, Joseph has a discovery and a dilemma. He discovers somehow, we don't know if Mary told him, if he just observed her stomach, or if he heard through the grapevine, the Bible doesn't tell us. But he discovers somehow that she is pregnant, that she is with child, and he's troubled by this. Imagine men, how you would feel. The woman you'd pledged your life to, that you were planning to marry, is pregnant, and you can only assume that she's been unfaithful to you. She's been with another man. So Joseph, in his grief, decides to cancel the wedding, to to annul their betrothal, and to secure a certificate of divorce. 
But then we have divine intervention and revelation in verses 20 and 21. Just as an angel appeared to Mary, so a messenger from God appears to Joseph in a dream, revealing that she is pregnant not because she's been unfaithful, but because of a miracle that has been wrought within her by the Holy Spirit. This is God's doing, the angel tells Joseph. The angel tells him that this baby will be a boy and they must name him Jesus and that he is coming to bring salvation for his people. Imagine the roller coaster for Joseph. What must have been the most devastating news he had ever heard, the most crushing and disheartening, I mean, sick to his stomach kind of grief, had all of a sudden been turned upside down to be the best news that could ever be told, that God is keeping his promises to bring salvation for his people. Complete reversal of what Joseph was expecting. And we find in verses 22 and 23 that this is actually the fulfillment of prophecy. This is not some random act by God. This is not plan B. Wow, my people Israel are really screwing up. I have an idea. Maybe I'll send my son. to say No, this is what God had been planning from day one. It had been foretold over 700 years prior to this through the pen and the mouth of Isaiah. Although that promise had a near fulfillment in that day, the birth of Jesus would be the greater and final fulfillment of this prophecy. The Son of God was coming, drawing near to his people to bring salvation. Joseph's response to all this, like Mary, is one of faith. His faith is demonstrated in obedience. In verse 24, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife. But then it tells us, Matthew tells us, he gives us this detail, but even though he took her as wife, he did not know her. They did not consummate the marriage until she had given birth to a son. Why does Matthew point this out? He's underscoring for us the emphasis on the virgin birth of Jesus. He's saying, listen, there is no chance. There's no chance that Joseph was the biological father. He was conceived of the Holy Spirit. This virgin birth was prophesied by Isaiah. It was announced by the angel to both Joseph and Mary. It was accomplished by the Holy Spirit. It was experienced by Mary herself, witnessed by Joseph, her husband. This is the clear testimony of Scripture, that Jesus was born, miraculously so, of a virgin, conceived by the Holy Spirit. Now, for both Joseph and Mary, believing in the reality of the virgin birth was the major testing ground of their faith. As the angel appeared to them and gave them this news, they were truly faced with a dilemma. Will they believe this message? Or will they shake their heads and go, no way? That's crazy. How could that happen? It was the testing ground of their faith. And they both passed the test. But what about us? It's maybe easy to see why it was important for them to believe this, but is it really all that important that we believe Jesus was born of a virgin? Why does it matter? I'd like to present to you this morning four reasons why the virgin birth matters for our faith. Why it matters that you embrace and believe and cherish and defend this biblical teaching. Now there's, there's more and I, trust me, I was trying to like cut this thing down because we could share more but I'd like to share with you just four. Four reasons why the virgin birth matters. Number one, the virgin birth matters for us because the deity of Christ depends upon it. The virgin birth matters because the deity of Christ depends upon it. Jesus is none other than the Son of God. 
This is the unavoidable conclusion of the entire testimony of Scripture. In Luke 1, 32, as we already read, he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. Not the Son of Joseph, not the Son of some other man, the Son of the Most High. Matthew 3, verse 17, God the Father thunders this declaration, this approval of Jesus at his baptism. A voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Later in Matthew chapter 17, for a brief moment, Jesus would unveil the glory of his divine nature on the Mount of Transfiguration. Peter, James, and John saw it. And the voice of God once again thundered, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Eventually, Jesus' disciples came to embrace this confession as their own. Peter replied to Jesus' question in Matthew 16, You are the Christ. The son of the living God. I love how Mark's gospel comes to a close with near the end of the conclusion there in Mark chapter 15. There's there's a Roman centurion who's just witnessed the death of Christ. And as the earthquake shakes the ground, as darkness cloaks the earth, this centurion blurts out, acknowledges the truth. It says, when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he had breathed his last, the centurion says this, truly, this man was the son of God. Jesus is the son of God. Not in a merely symbolic sense like the ancient kings, like David, who were called the sons of God. Not in an adoptive sense like those of us who believe, who are, who are brought into God's family and called the children of God. Jesus is the Son of God in the sense that he shares the very nature of God, that he is God in human flesh. Jesus claimed nothing less. That's why the religious leaders wanted to kill him. They accused him of blasphemy because, as John tells us, they accused him of claiming to be the Son of God. They knew exactly what was meant by that. Colossians 1.15 tells us that he, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. Hebrews 1.3, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Jesus says in John 14.9, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. If Jesus has a human father and a human mother, this cannot be true. But if Jesus is conceived by the Holy Spirit then he alone can say, I am the Son of God. The reality is that the virgin birth means Jesus shares God's nature. Now this is significant because if Jesus is God, then he did not come into being when he was conceived in Mary's womb. He has always existed as God. Kids, did God ever have a beginning? No, he has always been, hasn't he? That's why John doesn't give us the the physical birth story of Jesus. John goes all the way back to the beginning as he opens his gospel. He says, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word, you say it, was God. John goes on to tell us that the word, the preexistent word, became flesh and dwelt among us. The conception of Jesus was not the creation of a new person, but rather the arrival of the son of Jesus in human form. As Jesus famously declared in John's gospel, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. 
Jesus has always existed as God. But at his conception and at his birth, what Jesus did was took on a human nature in addition to his divine nature. This is a mystery for us. This, this union, it's, it's mind-blowing and it's deep, but we must affirm what Scripture teaches. There are two natures united in one person, without mixture, without confusion, without division, without separation. This is the glorious mystery of the incarnation. Like we read in Matthew, he is truly Emmanuel, God with us. But there's more that Jesus is the Son of God, that he is divine in nature, that he was born of a virgin, it makes possible, get this, his sinlessness. If Jesus is not born of a virgin, if he has a human father and mother, then he would have inherited that sinful nature from Adam that we all possess. But he is the Son of God. And like the angel told Mary, the implication of this is that he is holy. He is holy. Hebrews 4.15 tells us, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. 1 John 3.5 says that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. That can't be said of any of us, can it? Why are we sinners? For multiple reasons. One is that we choose to, to sin willingly in our, in our brokenness, and our fallen nature. But the reality is we inherit that fallen nature from our father, Adam. It's been passed down to every man, woman, every boy and girl, except one. There is one broken link in the chain of humanity that did not inherit that sinful nature. And it's Jesus. In the birth of Jesus, that direct parentage was partially interrupted. The Holy Spirit conceived Jesus in Mary's womb in such a way that the sinful nature of Adam was not passed on to him. It's the presence of the Holy Spirit that brought about this miracle. That's why in Luke 1.35, if you flip, flip back there, there's a little word that we often overlook. It says the Holy Spirit in verse 35 will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, you see that little word? Therefore, because of that, because of the power of God upon you, because the Holy Spirit is doing this within you, therefore, the child to be born will be called holy. He's holy because he's not the son of Adam. He is the son of God. The son of God. As the first Adam was fathered by God, so too would be the second Adam. Jesus is the Son of God, sinless, eternal, preexistent, come to dwell with us. The virgin birth matters because the deity of Christ depends upon it. If Jesus has a human father, he is not God, he could not be sinless, and he could never save his people from their sins because he would have his own sins to deal with. He could never offer an acceptable sacrifice on the cross. He could never be that spotless lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world. The virgin birth matters because the deity of Christ depends on it. But secondly, there's a second reason. The virgin birth matters because the humanity of Christ depends upon it. The humanity of Christ depends upon it. Jesus is no apparition. There are some who have wrongly said that, that Jesus is not fully human. That he merely appears as a man. That he's mostly God but looks like a man. We must reject this. Jesus is fully God and he is fully 
man. He is truly one of us. As we read earlier from John 1, the word became flesh. He didn't look like flesh. He didn't, he didn't simply appear as flesh. He became flesh and dwelt among us. 1 Timothy 2.5 says, There is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus. He is fully Man, Philippians 2, and perhaps one of the most beautiful and comprehensive explanations of this mystery, says that though Jesus was in the form of God, the Word, before all time existing as God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, to be selfishly hung on to, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, taking the essence of humanity upon himself, Paul says he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Why is it so important to affirm that Jesus was fully human, that he was born of a virgin? Well, there are several reasons. First of all, the, the promise to Adam and Eve, if you go all the way back again to our series in Genesis, back in chapter 3, do you remember what God told them? As the curse fell, as they stood before the holy judge, God not only promised death and difficulty and grief and brokenness for all of creation, he also gave them a glimmer of hope. The good news that the seed of the woman would one day crush the head of the serpent. Symbolizing total defeat over God's enemy, over the one that had deceived them and led them into sin and death. It would be the seed of the woman, one who would be born a human, a man. Galatians 4 tells us that this promise is fulfilled in Jesus. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Jesus is fully man. He is the seed of the woman who comes to redeem us. God promised that a man, one of the image bearers, harmed by Satan's lie in the garden, would be the one to ultimately triumph over God's enemy, over our enemy. And if Jesus is not a man, he cannot fulfill that promise. Not only were we promised that the seed of the woman would one day triumph, we also need a human representative, don't we? Adam was our representative in the garden. And by his, his sin, he led all of us into sin and death. In Adam, all die. But Jesus is the second Adam. We needed a man to represent us. We needed a human representative to succeed where Adam failed. And Jesus represents us in his righteous life, fulfilling the law. He represents us in his sacrificial death. And he paves the way for us as a man in his resurrection. Only a man can pay the sin debt for men. Only a man can fulfill the law on behalf of men. And that's what Jesus came to do as a man. Listen to how Paul explains it in Romans 5, starting in verse 17. If because of one man's trespass, speaking of Adam, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Christ Jesus. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Friends, we need a human Savior. 
We need a man who can represent us in his righteous life and in his sacrificial death so that we can be made right with God. The virgin birth is important because it shows that though Jesus was the Son of God, fully divine, possessing all of deity within himself, he is also the Son of Man. He is the second Adam. He is truly one of us. Denial that Jesus came in the flesh is not just incorrect. Get this, John says that it's actually the spirit of Antichrist to deny that Jesus came in the flesh. Listen to 1 John 4, starting in verse 2. By this, the apostle tells us, you know, that this, you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Friends, confession of Christ's humanity and deity together, this is central to our faith. It's central to our faith. The Apostle Paul, as he writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy 3.16, he quotes an ancient hymn, one of the early hymns of the church that was a confession of their faith. Paul says, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Since the earliest days of Christianity, this has been the confession of the church, that Jesus came in the flesh. He is both fully divine and fully human. Aren't you thankful we have a mediator, the man Christ Jesus? We needed, we needed a mediator who could reveal God to us. And only Jesus, the divine son of God, could do so. But we also needed a mediator who could represent us to God. A man who could stand between, fulfill the law, and pay our debt. And that's what we have in Jesus. Only Jesus, in the union of his two natures, can be both. If Jesus is not God and man, then we have no mediator and we have no salvation. I love 1 Timothy 2.5. There is one God, there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. Guys, the virgin birth matters. It's not just a fun, nifty detail that's part of the Christmas story. The deity of Christ depends upon it. And the humanity of Christ depends upon it. But there's a third reason I want to share with you. The virgin birth matters, thirdly, because it authenticates Jesus as the true Messiah. He is the true Messiah. And this is proven to us in part by the miracle of the virgin birth. This miraculous birth signified his identity. He is, as Luke 1 says, the son of the most high, the one who would reign forever. He is God's Messiah, God's anointed, who will reign forever and ever. Now, he's not the only one to claim to be the Messiah. There were many who were sort of lowercase messiahs. Some that God even used, like Carrie shared with us a couple weeks ago, like Cyrus, who allowed for God's people to be delivered and go back to the land of Israel. But there's only one ultimate Messiah, who is God in flesh, who comes to bring not a foreshadowing of God's promises to fulfillment, but the fullness of them. And it's Jesus. And there are some who falsely claim to be that ultimate Messiah. Satan always seeks to counterfeit God's plans. And even as we read the Gospels, we see the high priest deliberating, is this Jesus with the Messiah? We've seen other pretenders, other posers come and claim to be that man. And if this is not of God, it's going to die out. That's what Caiaphas 
said. But the virgin birth is proof. Nobody else can counterfeit that. It's like when we have a $100 bill, there's that special blue stripe. I've seen a $100 bill like twice in my life. I don't see a lot of those. But when I have seen them, they have these special markings on them. It makes it really hard to counterfeit. Someone who's trained can hold that up to the light. They can look at it with a magnifying glass, and they can tell this is the real thing because you can't counterfeit that. The virgin birth shows us that Jesus is the real thing. You can't counterfeit that. It is vindication that he is God's Messiah. Only the birth of Jesus brought about the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy. Only the birth of Jesus was foretold by the angels and came to pass just as they said. This miracle proves that Jesus is God's Messiah. And it's really one of several authenticating signs. The virgin birth would be followed by his miracles, changing water into wine, exercising authority over the unclean spirits, walking on water, feeding thousands, raising the dead to life, and ultimately in his resurrection it would be proven that Jesus is the Son of God. There's no argument. Look at all the evidence. Take the virgin birth away, however. Take the resurrection away. Take these miracles away. And Jesus is either deceived, believing himself to be Messiah when he's not, or he's deceiving us, trying to pull the wool over our eyes and mislead us. Virgin birth matters, doesn't it? Jesus is not deceived. He is not a deceiver. He is exactly who he claimed to be. He is God's Christ, the Messiah. This miraculous birth is directly tied not only to to proving that he is the Messiah, but is directly tied to his mission as Messiah. He, as it says in Matthew 121, will save his people from their sins. Who is Messiah? Why did Messiah come? He came to bring salvation. The the birth of Jesus, this virgin birth, is a sign, get this, that God is doing what he promised to do. He's providing salvation for his people. God sent forth his son, as it says in Galatians 4. Like we we love to quote John 3.16, God sent his only son so that whoever believes will not perish but have everlasting life. And this is the only way that salvation can happen. God must act If we are going to be saved, just as we need a man to mediate for us, there is no man who can provide salvation for us apart from the miraculous intervention and power of God. Salvation, as scripture tells us again and again and again, salvation belongs to the Lord. There is no other way. Psalm 3.8 says this, salvation belongs to the Lord. Hosea 13.4, God says, I am the Lord, your God, from the land of Egypt, You know no God but me, and besides me, there is no Savior. It's only through God's Messiah that we can be saved. Isaiah 43, verse 11, I, I am the Lord, and besides me, there is no Savior. Acts 4, 12, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Salvation belongs to the Lord. There's no other path. And as Jesus is revealed to be God's Messiah, we see that he is the path. He is the way, the truth, and the life. We will celebrate the salvation that God has provided through Jesus forever. Revelation 7.10, John sees a vision of an innumerable multitude crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Revelation 19.1, John says after this, 
I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. Friends, listen, salvation depends, depends upon the intervention, the initiation, and the provision of God. If God doesn't act, salvation doesn't happen. It can't. But God has acted. He has intervened. He has initiated. He has provided by sending Jesus, his Messiah, born of a virgin, fully God and fully man, to bring God's salvation to us, to save us from our sins. There is no other. And the virgin birth is a sign that testifies to this truth. It testifies to this truth because it vindicates that Jesus is God's Messiah. And then finally, the virgin birth matters Because the truthfulness of Scripture depends upon it. The truthfulness of Scripture depends upon it. Now, some of you have been thinking from the beginning, you know what, J.D., this could have been a really short sermon. Why does the virgin birth matter? Because the Bible says so. Period. Full stop. Case closed. Close up our Bibles. Let's go get some lunch. We could be done, right? Some of you are sharp. You've been thinking that from the beginning. Thinking, isn't that in and of itself enough of a reason for us to accept it? Well, I saved this point for last Not because it's least important, but because it's most important. You're exactly right. The fact that Scripture tells us Jesus is born of a virgin is the most compelling reason for us to believe it. Like Joseph and Mary, we are called to embrace by faith the authoritative and fully true Word of God. We must believe. I love what Wayne Grudem comments writing on this. He says, speaking of the virgin birth, whether or not we could discern any aspects of doctrinal importance for this teaching, we should believe it, first of all, simply because the scripture affirms it. And to that we say fully and unreservedly, amen. Amen. It's enough for us that this is what the Bible says. 1 Timothy 3.16 tells us that all scripture is breathed out by God. Proverbs 30 verse 5 says, every word of God proves true. God does not lie. He does not deceive. He does not obscure the truth. He has revealed it to us, and so we submit to it. In humility, we believe it, and in faith, we trust it. The virgin birth is held up for us by Scripture as the fulfillment of prophecy. It's asserted by the historical testimony of the Gospels, Matthew and Luke, two different complementary stories that tell us that it's true, and the rest of the New Testament builds upon this foundational conviction that Jesus is the Son of God. The bottom line is that if Jesus was not born of a virgin, then the Bible cannot be trusted. And if the Bible cannot be trusted, then we have no confidence in what it reveals to us about God, what it reveals to us about salvation, about life and death, about anything. Once you punch holes in Scripture, the foundation of our faith crumbles. As Charles Spurgeon once wrote, if we have in the Word no infallible standard of truth, then we are at sea without a compass. It's enough for us. That the Bible asserts that this is true and so we humbly embrace and submit it and submit to it. Upon the person of Christ, the God-man, rests every hope and promise of the Old Testament. All God's promises are yes in him. Upon the person of Christ, the God-man, is built the entire theological structure of the New Testament. Paul, John, Luke, Peter, Jude, James, they all write from the central conviction that Jesus is both Lord and Christ. 
who died and rose again for sin, who fully deserves our unreserved worship and obedience because he is God. Upon the Christ, the God-man, the church, the body depends for life. He is the vine and we are the branches. If you take away Jesus, the Jesus presented in Scripture, then you have no Christianity left. You have no gospel left. You have no good news, no hope of salvation outside yourself. The virgin birth matters because the truthfulness of Scripture depends upon it. So we say with Paul in Romans 3, let God be true though every man were found a liar. We affirm the virgin birth because Scripture insists that it happened and we are people who are submitted to and dependent upon the word of God. And that is enough for us. I want to pull out before we close three implications for this Um, because what we want this morning, what God wants this morning, God not only wants your mind to be informed. He not only wants you to gain intellectual understanding. God wants your heart to be changed today. He doesn't just want to fill your mind with understanding. He wants to stir up and create and deepen affections in your heart for Jesus. And he wants to move us to action Not just to understand, not just to feel, but to do. So what are the implications of these truths? Well, first and foremost, very simply, believe. Believe this truth. John John chapter 20, verse 31, John writes, These things, referring to his whole gospel, his testimony of Jesus' life, he says, These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Friends, if one believes merely in God, that God is there, that he's real, even that he created the world and is in charge of everything, if you believe merely in God, you are a theist, but you are not a Christian. It is not enough for us to simply believe that God is there. To believe in the reality of God does not save. It is only faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ that brings salvation. If you've never placed your faith and trust in Jesus, the God-man who lived a righteous life, died a sacrificial death, and rose again to bring salvation, if you've never turned from your sin and trusted in him, laid aside your rebellion, embraced him as your Lord and Savior, I want you to consider something this morning. I want you to consider this challenge. What are you going to do with Jesus? He claims to be God. The testimony of Scripture tells us that he died and rose again and that he's returning. What are you going to do with that? You can either reject him or you can ignore him or you can receive him. And eternal life hangs in the balance. Do you believe? Will you believe? The truths that have been presented this morning call for a response of faith. We must believe. Secondly, more than believe, I want to exhort and challenge you this morning, more than just believing in this truth, Christian, believer, we must cherish these truths. Cherish these truths. I'm so challenged by uh, something that John Piper said back in 2005 in a sermon titled, When I Don't Desire God. Listen to what he said. The devil has had more theologically accurate thoughts about God in the last 24 hours than you will have in a lifetime. He's brilliant, and he knows God inside and out and hates what he knows. 
Satan's problem is not doctrine, it's delight. Let me ask you, many of you are saying, great, J.D., I I know you want to cover this because it's really important, but I I know all this stuff, you know, good. Maybe there's somebody else here who needs to learn it. I'm speaking to you this morning. I know many of you believe this truth, but do you cherish it? Do you delight in the person of Jesus, the God-man, the Messiah, the fulfillment of all of God's promises? God with us, do you delight in him? Do you have joy in knowing him? Do you hunger to know him more? Do you long for his presence? Are you pursuing him, allowing his spirit to change you to be more like him? Is he your greatest treasure? If not, then all of the intellectual knowledge, all of the, the doctrinal, you know, T's dotted, or T's crossed, I's dotted, you know what I mean, all of that is ultimately not enough. If there is not a heart that is drawn towards Jesus. More than believe, I want to exhort you to cherish Christ, to enjoy him more, to taste the glory, to experience the thrill of new discoveries and a deeper sense of his presence, like that deer that's in the desert, David speaks of, that's longing, panting for the water. Is that the attitude and the orientation of your heart towards Jesus Christ? Friends, this is the heart of faith. This is the evidence. These kinds of affections are evidence that there is life within you, that the Spirit of God is truly at work in you, that there is light instead of darkness in you. I've quoted Charles Spurgeon already today, but this is too good not to share again. He says, He who does not long to know more of Christ knows nothing of him yet. If you don't have that hunger, that that desire, if you've never experienced what I'm talking about, this kind of joy and delight, then you may not know Christ because those who know him know what I'm talking about. We may struggle at times. We may grow cold. We may wrestle with sin. We may cry out, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. And and it's two steps forward, one step back. But those of us who know him know exactly what I'm talking about. If you've never experienced that, maybe you know about Christ, but you don't know Christ. Come to him today. Come and know him. Oh, that we would be able to say with Paul in Philippians 3.8, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. Can you say that today? The same Holy Spirit who miraculously created life in Mary's womb is here today. And he can miraculously create in you Affections for Christ, a desire to know him. He can give you new spiritual taste buds to delight in Jesus. Ask him to do it. Seek him. Seek him. We must cherish and delight in Jesus Christ. And then finally, a third implication. So if we must believe that these things are true, if we must embrace them in our hearts and delight in them and feel deeply the joy and the beauty of these truths. Lastly, there's something we need to do. We not only want to think rightly and feel rightly, we want to do what God demands that we do. And here's what we must do. Finally, stand for this truth with courage and conviction. Stand for this truth with courage and conviction. We must affirm the truthfulness and authority of God's word. Because the gospel is at stake. The glory of God is at stake. The salvation of souls is at stake. No matter what the court of popular opinion may say, no matter what 
the scoffing of those who are blinded by unbelief may, no matter how much they mock, we cannot and we must not compromise the testimony of Scripture. There's too much at stake. And we live in a day and age which is not unique, but it is hostile. There are many, even within, even under the roofs of other churches in our city today, there are some who over the period of Christmas time in Lawrence have twisted language, have tried to incorporate the wisdom and the science of the world in such a way to explain away the miracle of the virgin birth. That can never happen here. You must never tolerate that in your own heart, in your own life. We need to stand for these truths. It will take courage and it will take conviction. But it is what God calls us to do. He's not given us a spirit of fear to shrink back. Power, love, a sound mind that recognizes this is true and doesn't blink. Don't blink. May we believe and cherish and defend these precious truths of Scripture as those who have tasted the joy of knowing Christ. As those who are strengthened by the hope that Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us, the one who came to save us from our sins. May we believe and cherish and defend these truths as those who now enjoy the presence and power of the same Holy Spirit who brought all this to pass so many years ago. Let's seek that for the sake of God's glory, for the good of God's people, and for our joy. Lord Jesus in heaven, we are humbled this morning. I'm humbled because I lack the words to fully describe the mystery of one who possesses in his person a human nature and the divine nature. It breaks my brain to try to get my head around this. Lord, I lack the words to describe the beauty and the glory of what you have done for us in bringing salvation in such a unique and miraculous way. And Lord, I lack the words to communicate the severity and the weight and the importance of these things. So God, we ask for your Holy Spirit to take the scriptures that have been read this morning, press them home into our hearts that we might think and feel and do the things that bring you glory, the things that magnify your name, the things that enhance our joy in following you as your servants. Lord, for any here today who may know about you, but they may not personally know you, I ask that you would give them eyes to see the beauty of Christ. Remove the blinders that they could see your glory and be transformed by it. I pray that they would recognize the futility and the foolishness of sin, that they would lay it aside, and that they would bow their knee to the King of kings, the Lord of lords, to the glory of God the Father. We pray this, Jesus, in your name. Amen.